Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. In today's episode, Mark Meckler speaks to a group of Convention of States volunteers in Kentucky. This speech was given in 2019 at the Capitol in Frankfurt. God bless you, brother. So I have been involved in the Convention of States project now for five years, actually. It'll be five years in February. And the reason that I got involved in this project and co-founded this project was because I fundamentally believe in this country. This country is a very special experiment in all of human history. Literally, that's not an exaggeration. All of human history, going all the way back into the Bible, this is a unique human experiment. I think the closest thing you'll find to the way this country is set up and the idea of self-governance found in our founding documents and in the fight for liberty, the closest thing you'll find, and I think we're partially modeled on this, is the judges period in the Old Testament where the people chose their own judges. That's self-government, right? That's people choosing their own representatives. That's people who consent to being governed. And that's the foundation of this country, this idea that we consent to our form of governance. It is unique in human history, and often I think about the origins of that. Where did that come from in our history? Because it is so unique. You know, for me, I went to public school in Los Angeles, California, so I didn't get much of a history education. A lot of fiction, right, in, in the public schools these days. And so a lot of the history that I've learned, I've learned in the last 10 years by just reading the founding documents, reading the Federalist Papers, studying the origins of the Constitution, reading the ratification debates. Great book I'm rereading right now. If you, if you love that period, I think the best historian of that period is Pauline Meyer. She passed away a couple of years ago. She wrote a fantastic book on ratification called Ratification. It goes through all the ratification debates that were taking place in all the states. And there is a culture around the formation of this country that's unique in human history. It's this culture of self-governance. And I wondered where that came from. It did not necessarily come from Europe or from our forefathers overseas because they were governed by monarchies. So where did this idea that we have the right to govern ourselves come from? It's pretty interesting. You know, uh, clearly it predates the revolution itself because the revolution comes out of a culture that has widely adopted that idea. So I went back in American history and tried to study the period prior to the American Revolution. Now that's not an easy thing to do. There's not a lot written about the period prior to the American Revolution. In the schools what we learn about is we learn about the Mayflower Compact, right? Jamestown and the settlements there. That's kind of the first form of government set up by us on this continent. We learn about that. And then the next thing that we learn about in public schools in our history is the revolution. Jamestown, Mayflower Compact, and the American Revolution. Five or six years ago, somebody asked me the question in, in a forum like this, hey Mark, do you know how long it was between the Mayflower Compact and the American Revolution, the commencement of the revolution? And I kind of went way back in the filing cabinets of my mind to find that information, and I found a dusty, empty drawer. <laughs> Literally no idea how long between the Mayflower Compact, Jamestown, and the American Revolution. And what they informed me, and I've researched it subsequently, roughly 158 years between Jamestown and the American, I see somebody nodding, that means you're smart, you know this. There's usually a couple people in the audience smarter than me that already knew this. And so 
that amount of time is extraordinary. It's five generations, it's a lot of time, very little written about that period of American history, very little. And I wondered why that was. Did nothing happen for, for literally five generations? Nothing happened on this continent, nothing of import. And I thought that was strange. I happened to be at Hillsdale College a few years ago, and my daughter is a junior there. And I had a chance to sit with the president of the college, Larry Arn. A lot of you guys know who Larry Arn is. And I was asking him, we were actually sitting at a football game, and I asked him, who writes about this? Is there anybody that writes about this period in American history? And he recommended a historian to me by the name of Bernard Balin. Uh, Balin's now 91 years old and retired, still alive, still sharp as can be. But he writes about this, this period in American history. And I went back and I read everything that he wrote and everybody who wrote around him. And I found out something very interesting. This is the most important period in American history. Pre the nation, pre the Constitution. Because this is the period from which self-governance springs. You know, in the American Revolution, they were fighting against the greatest fighting force ever assembled in human history. It's pretty extraordinary. Farmers and merchants and lawyers, just regular people, fighting against the greatest fighting force ever assembled, the most well-fed, the most well-funded, the most well-trained, the most experienced, and they were willing to fight them. You have to wonder where that comes from. What was the philosophy? What were the ideas that led them into that fight? And a lot of times I know we get that history from guys like Washington and Adams and Madison, Patrick Henry, the great orators, the great writers, the great leaders of the area. But I actually think that if we only read what they wrote and what they said, we miss the essence of the people who actually came out and fought the American Revolution. That's what I call the great man or great person theory of history, right? People who write the speeches and the people who stand at the dais, they write the history. They are the history we read about. But if you think back to the American Revolution or any important uh, historical event, generally there are hundreds if not thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands that actually participate in making the history. There are actually more of the history than the great leaders we hear about. And I think that's true of the American Revolution as much as it is of any period in history. In 1843, long after the revolution is over, long after the new constitution is in place, there's a young historian traveling the country. His name is Mellon Chamberlain. And Chamberlain is a school teacher and a self-taught historian. 1843, he realizes that there are a few Minutemen still living. A few people who actually came out and fought in the American Revolution. And I want you to think about that. At that point, they would have been in their late 80s or early 90s. Back then, that's really old, right? Average life expectancy was 54. So Chamberlain realizes if he doesn't collect their stories, those stories will disappear into history. So he's traveling the country collecting these stories. And in 1843, he happens across Captain Levi Preston. Preston was a captain in the Continental Army, fought in the battles at Lexington and Concord. He's now retired and he's living in North Carolina. And when Chamberlain encounters Preston, he asks him a series of questions. And he asks him about why he went out to fight in the revolution. These are important questions when you consider only 30% of the population roughly supported the revolutionary cause. Obviously, a much lower percentage actually fought in the war. So finding out and understanding why people actually came out to fought is important. And Chamberlain's trying to preserve this for history. There's no YouTube. 
no even Sony Walkmans. There's no way to record it. If he doesn't get the words and write them down, we don't get it. The story that I'm telling you, Chamberlain recounts many years after 1843 in the North Church at Danvers on the history of those historic battles, the shots heard around the world. And as he tells the story, he starts the story, you can find it on the internet, he starts the story by mocking the press, which I think is hilarious, because he trusts the press just about as much as we do. And in, in the humor of the time, he starts telling the story by saying something like, I'm 54 years late in telling this story, but I trust it will be early enough for the evening press. And he's mocking them for being so far behind the events of the day. And he talks about meeting uh, Captain Preston, and he tells these questions that he asked Captain Preston. First, he asks them, Captain Preston, when you went out to fight the Redcoats that day on the field of battle, what did you mean by it? Were you so infuriated by the Stamp Act that you had to buy those stamps and put them in all your documents, and you were just offended by the intrusion, that that's what drove you out to fight? And Captain Preston said, stamps? I never bought a stamp. Governor Bernard locked him in the armory, and that's the last we ever heard of them. So now, I don't know about you guys, I learned in school the Stamp Act really made people mad, and they were really frustrated about that. So he goes to the next thing, and he says, how about the tea tax, that outrageous tax on tea? You were offended by that kind of taxation, that high taxation imposed upon you without representation. And Preston said, I never drank any tea. I was a farmer. We drank coffee. The boys dumped it in the harbor. That's it. He didn't go out and fight because of the, the tea, the tax on tea. Now, I learned, what I learned in grammar school and middle school and high school was that it was the Boston Tea Party. It was all about the tax on tea. That's what the revolution was about. I also learned some about the next question he asked. He said, well, maybe you were reading the great revolutionary writers, the, the men that were influencing all the great thinker, thinkers, Milton and Burke and Paine. Preston says, I've never heard of any of those men. I never read any of those things. We read the Bible, Psalms, maybe the Almanac. But those men you speak of, never heard of them. All of the causes that we've certainly learned about, about the American Revolution, were not the cause for a man who actually took the field of battle, who was actually there at the first battle. So Chamberlain is going big now. He's going to go try to figure out there's got to be something that I know that caused him to fight. And he says, Maybe it was the heavy hand of British tyranny. You were just sick and tired of British tyranny. And Preston says, tyranny? Never felt a whit of it. No tea tax, no stamp act, no great revolutionary writers inspiring him, and no tyranny. Yet he put his family at risk, his life at risk, his livelihood at risk, everything at risk to fight the Redcoats. So Chamberlain restates the question and says, well, what is it that brought you to the field of battle that day? You had everything to risk. You were a young man, you were a farmer, you had a family. And Preston expresses what I believe is the most succinct and beautiful sentiment underlying the American Revolution ever stated. He says, son, when we went out to fight them redcoats, we meant only one thing. We had always governed ourselves, and we always intended to. And them redcoats, they intended that we shouldn't. That's it. 
That's the entire political philosophy underlying the American Revolution. Self-governance. And if you think about it in historical contents, 158 years after the Mayflower Compact, a man like Levi Preston couldn't imagine a government that could tell him what to do. People coming from across the ocean far away in essentially invading and saying, this is what you're going to do now. Because for Preston, his father and his grandfather and his grandfather's father and grandfather before them had all been self-governing people. They had created their own form of government. They had elected their own elected officials who were responsive to them. They were governed according to the consent of the people and the idea that people could come in from far away and tell them what to do with no representation was so foreign to them, it was against their very culture, the essence of their culture. And that's where the American Revolution comes from. And I think it's really important we understand that because I think all of you and all of us, and frankly, almost everybody in this country today has that in their cultural DNA. Those are the people who came before us. That's our form of government is based upon it. That's our civic culture. We believe, and we are correct, that we have the God-given right to govern ourselves. The folks in Washington, D.C. don't believe that, by the way. They don't think you have that right. The courts don't think you have that right. Congress doesn't think you have that right. Presidents have expressed that they don't really think you have that right. And beyond the right, they just don't think you can handle it. They think they're smarter than you. They think they're better than you. They think they're, that they are fit to rule over you. That's not our DNA. I will tell you this is very different in America. If you've traveled around the world at all, you will notice that our culture is completely different. You know, if you were, I've traveled all over Europe and Asia. If you're in Asia somewhere and you walk into a restaurant and you've got eight people in your party you will not ever see people in Asia pull two four-top tables together to make a table of eight. That would be outrageous. You would do that in a restaurant. You went in the pizza parlor, you needed two, there are two fours there. You'd drag them together. We see it in restaurants all the time. If you did that in Asia, you have no idea. You would be considered a mad person. How dare you? Nobody told you to do that. You have no right to do that. What are you doing taking matters into your own hands? This is true in Asia, it's true in Africa, it's true in Europe. Here, it's like you wouldn't even think about it. You might think, oh, well, I'm helping the situation because there's two tables need to go together. I'm not gonna, I'll just do it myself, right? We are a DIY nation, do-it-yourself nation. That is this culture of self-governance that goes very, very, very deep in us. And today we're uneasy and uncomfortable as a people because Washington, D.C. is constantly, constantly telling us what to do. Today, Washington, D.C. tells us everything. By the way, every day when you get up, from the time you get up until the time you get up again, in other words, even while you sleep, Washington, D.C. is involved in your life. They tell you what can be in the paint on your walls. They tell you how your air conditioning is made. They tell you how your house has to be wired. They tell you what kind of light bulbs you can put in your ceiling, you get in your car. They tell you what the safety equipment on your car has to be, what kind of fuel you can put in your car, what kind of food you can eat, how you know, they recommend calorie count, you name it, they recommend. In fact, nowadays they even tell us what kind of toilet we have to put in our house. 
Imagine Ben Franklin and George Washington and somebody shows up to their house, sir, I'm sorry, but your outhouse is not built according to federal regulations. Today, they actually tell us what kind of toilets we can put in our house. Now, for some people, that's a line too far, right? I'll tell you, I just left California and moved to Texas, but when I was living in California, I built a new office, and this is something that I'm very proud of. I put an illegal high-flush toilet in my office. I'm a rebel. What can I say? Some lines you can't cross. So here we are today where we have an overriding federal government that tells you everything you can and can't do from the time you wake up till the time you go to sleep. It's far beyond anything the founders could have possibly imagined. And I think they would have been insane over all the stuff that we have Washington, D.C. doing to us. And I have a very vivid imagination. So sometimes I imagine a conversation with the founders. I'm sitting at my desk. I put my feet up on my desk. I've, I kind of imagine myself, and Ben Franklin's one of my favorite founders. He was so cantankerous and lived to a ripe old age. So I imagine myself sitting with Ben Franklin in an alehouse in Philadelphia. And I imagine myself complaining about the size and the scope and the reach of the federal government and the ruling elite and all the things they're telling us to do. And I imagine Franklin nodding and he understood human nature. He knew this was going to happen. He's not surprised by anything I'm telling him. And then he asks me this question. Well, have you turned to the Constitution? And I say, of course, Dr. Franklin, I know the Constitution inside now. We love and revere the document. He says, yes, yes, but have you used the Constitution? And I say, well, you know, I, we fight for it. We believe in it. No, 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 I understand that. But there are tools in there for your use that we put in there for you, for the situation you're describing. Have you used those tools? And I imagine myself specifically and a little sheepishly asking, well, what tools are you specifically referencing, Dr. Franklin? And I imagine him saying, well, have you read the debates, the Constitutional Convention that took place here in this city in 1787? Have you read the debates? And I imagine I, I would say, yes, I, I read all of Madison's notes. I understand what was said. And he said, Do you, did you read the notes from September 15th, 1787? And I say, I did, Dr. Franklin. I remember that day quite well. September 15th, by the way, I cannot forget ever. Most important day in American history. It's my wife's birthday, so I have to remember that one. But I, I say to Dr. Franklin, yeah, I remember there was the debate around Article 5. And he said, that's correct. Colonel George Mason stood and he addressed us. And he told us how silly we were. We had forgotten something very important. We had given the power to Congress to propose amendments should they deem them necessary. But we had failed to include power for the people to do the same, acting through their state legislatures. And he would say to me, I recount very clearly as Colonel Mason stood, he spoke more than anybody else in the convention. And he said this to us, are we so naive that we believe that a federal government that becomes a tyranny will ever propose amendments to restrain its own tyranny? His exact words, verily I say they shall not. And Franklin would look at me and said, well, you've read that, so you've used that, right? Did it fail? Were you unable to restrain the federal government? Did they fail to heed the amendments that you proposed and ratified? And I would have to say sheepishly, I'm embarrassed to tell you, Dr. Franklin, but there's a lot of people who just say it's too scary. And, and we can't do this because it's, it's dangerous. And we might lose our Constitution. And Dr. Franklin would stand in anger and he would pound his cane on the table. And this is what he would say. 
fear? You want to talk about fear? We lived through a revolution. We fought and died. We spilled blood. I lost friends and family to give you this country, to give you this constitution, to give you these tools. And you're telling me people are scared to use the constitution to save the constitution? My God, man, what's wrong with you? What's become of this nation? Are you men and women of spine, of fortitude, of courage? Are you cowering in fear in the corner? That's what he would say. He would say that it reminds him of a quote by Sam Adams. Sam Adams once said to people who opposed the fight for American independence, he said, go from me now and may your chains rest lightly upon you and may our countrymen not remember that you were our brethren. That's what Franklin would say to me, and he would say, look, I'm not really interested in talking to you anymore. We gave you this tool for a situation just like this. We told you this was going to happen. You can read about it in the history. You've read Madison's notes, and what you're telling me is you're too spineless to use the tool. I can't be bothered with you. And I think we would not do him proud. We would not do any of the founders proud. You know, the founders, those who framed the Constitution, those who were in that convention, voted unanimously without debate to put this clause of Article 5 into the Constitution. I want you to let that resonate in your head. The echo is good for this. Unanimously, without debate. How much more clear of a message could we have across the ages than saying, this is, by the way, one of the only things that makes it into the Constitution unanimously and without debate. It was so clear to them that this moment would come. It was so clear to them that they needed to give us a tool to deal with it. And it was so clear that this was the tool that they gave us, that it was unanimous and without debate. Madison's notes in that place actually say, nin com, no comment or no debate. That's an extraordinarily clear message to us across the ages. And the only question today that we have to ask ourselves is, do we have the courage? Do we have the fortitude? Will we stand on the shoulders of giants who gave us this country, who gave us these powers, who gave us this constitution, and who gave us the right and the ability and the power and, I think, the moral imperative to save the constitution? Will we? Or will we say we're too scared? I can tell you what I'll do. I will stand and fight for the Constitution. I will stand and fight for the country because, as Grant said, I have to look my kids in the eyes. I have a son who just finished four years in the Marine Corps, getting out and getting ready to go to law school. He, he took an oath. The oath said he was willing to give his life to defend our Constitution against enemies, foreign and domestic. Right? The same oath that everybody who's been in the military takes, the same oath that our law enforcement takes, defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. If he can do that, then I can stand and fight. And to those who would say that it's too dangerous, I would say, you might have said the same thing during the American Revolution, and thank God there were people with the willingness and the courage to stand. Today where we're at, there are over 3.7 million people like you, volunteers all over the country engaged in this fight. We have volunteers in 100% of all legislative districts in the country. The resolution has passed 12 states. We need to get to 34, so we're over one-third of the way there. Every single major national notable conservative who's spoken on this issue has spoken in favor. 100%. There are no exceptions. Now, there are people who are opposed that I would say are conservatives, none of them people that you would necessarily know about as national names. What you have 
I think, in this country is you have fringe on the right and the left, and I do mean fringe, who oppose this. So we see fringe groups on the far left, fringe groups on the far right. In fact, I witnessed them sharing talking points in state legislatures, literally. I've seen the emails, I've seen the memos saying that this group who we're normally radically opposed to, you should support them in this fight. Radical right and radical left. The vast mainstream of America is in support of this. We're polling it state by state. On average, three quarters of Americans support this, roughly. Uh, two thirds uh, of independents support this. Over 50% of all Democrats support this in every state where we've polled. We have not yet polled in Kentucky, but we will be doing that. We're doing it state by state. So what I ask you guys to do today is to stand with me. I see all the buttons. That makes me really happy. I appreciate it. Stand with me. Go talk to your legislator. Let them know why you support Convention of States. And I'm going to make it really simple and succinct for you. There's a fundamental question facing us as Americans today. It is the existential question, in my opinion. In Washington, D.C., they stage all these fights, and they want us having all these fights. They love these fights in Washington, D.C. Fights about immigration, fights about education, fights about health care, fights about the environment. The underlying premise of every one of those fights is identical. The underlying premise is those decisions will be made in Washington, D.C., far away from you. And you personally will have very little input, and hopefully, from their perspective, no input at all. People who are much smarter than you and much more elite than you will make these decisions for you. That's the underlying premise. And when we engage in all those fights, and that's what we pay attention to, the bread and the circus in Washington, D.C., they win. Their power increases, your power decreases. But the right question, the question we should be asking, and the question you should ask every legislator you talk to today is this question. In America, who decides? Who decides. That's the question that matters. Not so much what's decided, who decides. And I say that the founders answered that question very clearly with three simple words and beautiful calligraphy. We the people decide. We the people. And we the people doesn't mean some bureaucrat in Washington, D.C., thousands of miles away from here. It doesn't mean a Congress thousands of miles away from here. We the people means we, us, you, me, you and your family, you and your community, you in your church, you individually, you in your business. And if we have to go to big government, maybe you in your states. Most decisions are meant to be made here at home in Kentucky. So the real question is, will you decide for yourselves in Kentucky? Or will folks in Washington, D.C. decide for you? And if you think that folks in Kentucky should decide, then you're a supporter of Convention of States. If you think and you like power concentrated in Washington, D.C., then you probably oppose what we're doing. And most of the people who oppose what we're doing, they're pretty comfortable with the status quo, even if they won't say that. So in conclusion, I'd just like to thank you guys for having me here today. It's an honor and a privilege to beautiful state house. I love this state house. One of the best locations as far as pretty locations in the country as far as I'm concerned. And it's an honor and a privilege to be here and to stand with you all. And I'm happy to take a few questions. Thank you very much. Yes, ma'am. And, and loud, please. Sure. So the question, if you guys didn't hear it, uh, some specific amendments or things we'd like to see happen at the convention. The resolution for convention that's being considered in all the states around the country contains three subject matter areas. 
First is uh, anything that would impose fiscal restraints on the federal government. That would include a balanced budget amendment. Anybody think the federal government needs to get its fiscal house in order maybe? Yeah, or we're all going to crash. So a balanced budget amendment. A balanced budget amendment alone is a terrible, dangerous thing, honestly, because they can balance the budget just by imposing taxes on us or by faking their accounting like they do right now. So another would be to impose generally accepted accounting principles, uh, tie revenue to, uh, say, gross domestic product or population plus inflation. So those are the types of fiscal restraints that could be imposed. Second is anything that would impose term limits on federal officials. When we talk about term limits, People get really excited about term limits on Congress. By the way, you'll hear a bunch of legislators around here tell you they don't like that idea. I'm not sure they want to campaign on that issue. 80% of the American public says we want term limits on Congress. I actually am really excited about term limits on the federal judiciary and term limits on the bureaucracy. I don't think people should go to Washington, D.C. and work in the bureaucracy for 40 years, completely disconnected from the American public, having no idea what they're doing to the rest of us. And I think we have a problem on the Supreme Court with life tenure. When life tenure was uh, given to the Supreme Court originally by the founders, average life expectancy, as I said, was 54. Average age of appointment was 47. It gives you an idea for roughly what they thought people would serve on the Supreme Court. I'd love to see something like 12-year term limits on the Supreme Court. Okay, one of the reasons we're having these incredible fights over the Supreme Court right now is because we know these folks are going to serve for 30 years. They're going to affect the court literally for generations. It's not how it was ever intended to be. And I would like to cool some of the rhetoric and let's get some justices rotating in and out of office maybe every 12 years or so. It will not politicize the office anymore because they're still not going to be running for office. They're still, it'll still be an appointed seat. But I think that will cool the rhetoric, and I think we'll have a better Supreme Court out of that. The last, and I think the most important area that can be addressed by convention, is the scope and the power and the jurisdiction of the federal government. Anything that would put limits on that. Limits, and the key is limits. All of these things limit terms, limit scope, power, and jurisdiction, limit their fiscal power. Those are the only things that can be done. This is why I think that's so important, because everything else I'm discussing are symptoms. Why do politicians want to be in Washington, D.C. for their entire lives? It's a pretty good gig. The most of them are making more money than they've ever made. They go in, they're not rich. They come out, they're rich. They get a job as a lobbyist making a million bucks a year. I mean, it's a pretty sweet gig. They go in, they're called representatives. By the way, if you haven't been there, they call each other members because they join a club when they get there. It includes a health club and great health benefits, better than ours, by the way. Uh, it includes like driving around in black limousines and going to fancy parties and having people tell you how smart and handsome and wonderful you are all the time. It's not a bad club to belong to. So, but the reason they're there is they have all this power, money, right? And, and they can tell you what to do. We need to limit that power and that jurisdiction. We need to take that stuff away from them. To be really specific, I'll give you the one I think is most important. We have something in the Constitution called the Commerce Clause. The Commerce Clause was intended to be a narrow enumerated power, giving the federal government the power to regulate interstate commerce. And what that meant in 1787 and 1789, when the Constitution was ratified, the word regulate meant something different than it means today. By the way, they didn't have a federal register. They didn't have 80,000 pages of federal regulations. The regulatory state didn't exist in 1787. They didn't even know anything about it. When they said regulate, they meant regularize. If I said regularize to you, you would think, well, make it the same or smooth it out, make it regular. That was the point of the Interstate Commerce Clause, to give the federal government the power to smooth out 
interstate, across state line, trade. And by the way, the word commerce in 1787 means something different too. Got to look at things. If we're originalists, you look at them in context. Context, what commerce meant was the shipment of goods. So the goal was give the federal government the power to smooth out the shipment of goods across state lines. Why? New York and New Jersey are about to come to military blows in a trade war over tariffs in 1787. They said, man, this is a mess. We've got to give the federal government to make sure this doesn't happen. We'll give them the power. So today, interstate commerce and the regulation of interstate commerce means everything. I'm not exaggerating when I say everything. That sounds crazy. But in 1931, there's a Supreme Court case called Wickard v. Filburn. It takes place in Ohio. A farmer is growing wheat for his own consumption. And the federal government imposes fines on him for growing too much wheat. And he says, under what constitutional authority can you find me? And they said, the Interstate Commerce Clause. And he said, wait, wait, I'm not shipping wheat interstate. I'm not even selling wheat. And they said, ah, exactly. Because you're growing your own wheat and eating it yourself, you're not buying wheat on the open market, so you are now affecting interstate commerce. Which means, I mean, I know this doesn't make sense to normal people, but the Supreme Court was saying, if you're not doing business, you're doing business and affecting interstate commerce, which means everything is interstate commerce. Today, by the way, specifically, these departments operate under Interstate Commerce Clause constitutional authority, according to the Supreme Court. How about the DEA, the FDA, the USDA, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Energy, the Department of Education, and the EPA, just to name a few. Without this weird, bizarre, nonsensical, irrational interpretation of the Commerce Clause, none of those departments actually have constitutional authority to exist. And so I would propose that in order to rein in the scope and the power and the jurisdiction of the federal government, we take the Commerce Clause back to its original meaning. If I could issue one amendment and my fantasy amendment, it would just say, no, really, we meant this whole thing the first time. Right? That's what we're trying to get back to the original Constitution. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. That's correct. So uh, I'll repeat in case you guys didn't hear the question. First is, uh, we're going to be going to talking to legislatures and their legislators today, and there's no pre-filed bill, and that is correct. That was the question. No pre-filed bill this year. Short session. I'm not sure whether or not we'll even end up getting a bill filed. I have uh, 28 appointments scheduled today, so I don't have those memorized, but you could talk to the folks about who I'll be talking to. Um, I have 28. I won't make it to all of those. They'll end up no, they'll end, they'll end up parsing me out to the ones that they think are most important. So, I, I don't know offhand. Uh, the folks who are like uh, Mary Jo over there, who's, so what, what I do when I come into a state, so you know, I mean, obviously I, I'm around to all 50 states. I've been in 44 over the last two years. I come in and I serve the state teams and I count on them to know what's important on the ground. And my job is to do their bidding on the ground. Our organization is a little weird. And what I mean by that is we're used to organizational pyramids where the guy who is the president sits at the top of the pyramid. I'm at the bottom. <laughs> and my job is to serve the organization. And that means functionally when I come into a state like this, my job is to do what the grassroots tell me to do. And so these guys know the legislature and they're in charge of where we'll be going today. Any other questions? Yes, sir. How 
Question is, how will the delegates to convention be chosen? This is actually one of my favorite things about the whole process. Here's why I'm a federalist. I love the federalist system. And so they're chosen in pure federalist fashion. And what I mean by that is each state will make its own decision on how to choose its delegates. What's known for sure is each state gets one vote. That's, the way a con that's why it's called a convention of states. And the states come in as sovereign entity. They each have one vote. But a state could send one delegate or 100 delegates. That's going to be up to the state. And how they arrive at those delegates and how those delegates vote is going to be up to the state. But it's up completely 100% up to the state legislature to choose the delegates and to decide how those delegates are selected. Yes, sir. Yeah, so the question is, you know, Congress makes all these laws that they don't apply to themselves, which is incredible. I mean, it's hard to believe that they actually do this. Uh, the audacity of doing that is so incredible. Uh, and the question is, could we pass an amendment which makes it so they can't do that? And the answer is unequivocally yes. That's a limitation on federal power. That's one of the things, that I'll tell you, these are the things that I, I'm fairly certain will come out of a convention. That's one. That, you know, 99 100% of American people are going to say they shouldn't be able to exempt themselves from the laws that they write. Another one, a balanced budget's going to come out, some form of balanced budget. Another one that I'm pretty sure we haven't discussed that's going to come out is the idea of what's called a single subject amendment. Most states have a rule in their legislature that you can't do what's called log rolling, which is put 100 different things in one bill and then make legislators make impossible choices. In the federal government, our legislators are required to do that all the time. Your legislator promised to do X, they get a bill that says X, and then somebody tacks on some horrible thing under that bill, now what do they vote for, right? Yes or no? And so I think we'll get a single subject amendment. I believe we're gonna get some form of term limits out of it. Uh, I don't know exactly what those term limits will be. We held a simulation, and legislators tend not to like term limits. There'll be a lot of the delegates. They came up with 12 years in the House, and 12 years in the Senate, 24 years, which is actually longer than the average person serves in Washington, D.C., but that's what came out of our simulation. Those are the ones that I think are likely to come out of a convention. Yes, ma'am, and I'll come to you next. About, uh, forced vaccination and overload of toxins that our children are put under at younger ages. Yeah, so the question is about forced vaccinations, and so these are things that... Uh, and, and the vaccination load placed on children at younger ages and toxins. And these are the kinds of issues that are generally should be decided at the state level. Because that's where we can come to the Capitol and lobby our legislators. I don't, I don't know about you guys, but I haven't spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C. trying to lobby my legislator. It's hard to do. Uh, in California, our delegation is so huge, it almost didn't matter uh, where I'm from originally. And so I think that's the kind of issue that belongs here in the state. And more and more of the federal government's taking over those issues. We, that's our whole goal, is to put the power to deal with that in your hands here at the state level. Yes, sir. My comment is really about limiting the power of federal judges to overrule the will of the people in the states. And what happened, I moved here some years ago from Michigan, and there was a, a state constitution law that we all voted on there, which said that in Michigan, we wouldn't have uh, the right, or universities wouldn't have the right to discriminate based on color of skin, because we all should be equal. It passed overwhelmingly. A federal judge came along and said, that's unconstitutional. 
I don't know what, uh, under what premise it could be possibly unconstitutional to make everyone equal. Yeah, and so the question, I think, generally, if I could restate, is about the overarching power of the federal judiciary. Can we limit that? And the answer is absolutely. The federal judiciary was not very well formulated by the founders, to be honest with you. I mean, there's not much specified it, about it in the Constitution. The Constitution says there shall be a Supreme Court and essentially such subsidiary courts as uh, Congress shall deem necessary. So that's really in the hands of Congress right now, which is why it's so out of control, in my opinion. Congress could fix the problem you're describing like that, no problem. But they choose not to. Congress chooses not to fix a lot of things that they can. They don't like to take responsibility for things. We have a fundamental problem, I think, in the federal judiciary, uh, also with jurisdiction generally. And so we could fix constitutionally and limit the jurisdiction of the federal courts. And not only can we, but we have a good example of this. You know, when people talk about the founders and what the founders intended, you could look at what they did. That's the best way to know what they intended, right? Uh, most people are unfamiliar with the 11th Amendment, the First Amendment after the Bill of Rights. It, it's not one that we think of with great consequence or great fanfare, but shortly after the Bill of Rights is passed, the Supreme Court takes up a case, and it's a case of litigation between two states. And the Supreme Court says, out of the blue, we have original jurisdiction over every litigation between states. They have to go straight to us. They're going nowhere else. And the founders said, whoa, 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 hold on. Most of them still alive at this point, by the way. And the founders said, that's not what we intended for you guys at all. You're, the states have their own deal. They can fight it. They don't need you. And so they passed the 11th Amendment limiting the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. So if we want to look to limit the jurisdiction of the courts, we look to the example of the founders. When they needed to do so, they passed an amendment to the Constitution. So we absolutely can limit the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court and all other courts by passing constitutional amendments. Yes, sir. This is kind of a critique. Um, yeah. So the question is, our critique, are we going to do a better job of seeing convention of states get the word out and get more media coverage? The answer is your lips to God's ears and to donors' ears. So we do the best we can, but that's an expensive proposition. And I'm, I'm going to give you an example, and I'll, I'll give you numbers. We're pretty transparent about stuff like this. You know, we were on the Sean Hannity show for the first six months of last year. We advertised every day. I think it was three to five days a week on the Sean Hannity show. The cost on that's $375,000 per quarter. It's an incredible amount of money. Uh, we looked at being on, Mark Levin has a new podcast coming up. I just, it was too much money for us to raise. So we get the word out through the volunteers. We do spend some money on advertising, but the numbers get really big, really fast. And the bigger the media market, the bigger the numbers. And so that's the difficulty. But the answer is yes, we can, and yes, we should, and yes, we are trying to. Are you in contact with donors, brothers? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've never. <laughs> well, look, our, our organization is primarily funded by small donors. So, uh, and I'm really intimate with this stuff because we're not a big organization structurally. And the development department is headed by my wife, who 
sits in my house with me, and she's the one who's in charge of that part of things. So we have over 80,000 donors in our database. Our average donation is 30, last I looked, uh, which was just about a week ago, is $36.98. That's the average donation. Uh, are there larger donors? Yeah, we occasionally have larger donors. The problem with most large donors is most large donors like the political status quo. They give money into politics because they benefit from it personally. And because we're not looking for something, you know, we're not looking to increase farm subsidies or to decrease regulation on pharma or what, anything in particular like that, the big donors tend to play politics that way. Or, number two, they tend to be what we call social donors. Like they want to go to the big RNC function or the governor's inauguration or whatever. We, we don't offer that. Hey, we're just regular folks, and I mean, they can come to my house and have a ham sandwich with me for lunch if they want. Well, they, they have to be aware as anybody else that if this debt bubble pops, they're going to be as bigger losers than we are. I agree with that. So the question is, don't aren't the big donors aware of that if the debt bubble pops, they're all going to be losers? I've talked to a bunch of them about this, and you're going to be horrified when you hear this. They all say, yeah, but I'm okay. I got my stuff. I'm protected. My kids are protected. I hear that from a lot of very wealthy people. Yes, ma'am. So that's, she said it's really up to us to get the grassroots volunteer. Yep. Hallelujah. Thank you. And as, as well said as it could be said, it goes from the bottom up, not the top down. And think about, so we have 3.7 million people who signed up in support of the organization. What would happen if each of those people got 10 people to be supporters, right? We'd be at 37 million and this would be done honestly, with that kind of volume. So that's the most cost-effective way. And grassroots is the only way this is going to happen. It doesn't, I'm not disagreeing with you. I mean, in a... Yeah. You're right on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any other questions before we close it? You, do you want to close it out? We need to close it out. All right, how about one more? Can I do one more quick? Yes, ma'am. I got a pretty lady over here. I can't resist I taking one. <laughs> Yeah, when a congressman votes present, they weren't willing to take a vote. Yeah, well, there were people who didn't want to take a position on her speakership because they would have... No, but as long as she got enough, the, the majority votes, and she got the majority votes. So, yeah, look, I, I deal with politicians all across the country. I'll close with this. Um, when I started in politics 10 years ago, and it's a, I'll, I'll admit this, even though it's embarrassing for me to admit, I would have said, I did say, the American people are stupid and they get the government they deserve. I'm embarrassed that I had that attitude, but that was my attitude, right? I looked out and across the country, I just can't believe how dumb people are. 
I have the exact opposite impression now. There's genius in America in every state, in every city, and to be honest with you, and shockingly maybe, in every legislature. In your legislature today are great American patriots, men and women who could go toe-to-toe -to -toe and sit at the table with any of the founders. I mean that genuinely. And so I would say when you go out there today, there's one major thing I want you to be really careful about and really sure about is that you are kind and polite and respectful and loving and appreciative to the people that you talk to in this legislature. And that starts with every staff person, the janitor, the people who work in the cafeteria, the people who work in the offices and the legislators themselves. They sacrifice an awful lot to be here in Frankfurt. They leave their homes, they leave their families, they leave their businesses. Mostly it's a pretty thankless job. And we might see them on TV and think they got a lot of prestige. Mostly people call up and yell at them and tell them how stupid they are. We don't do that. At Convention of States, our way of doing politics, from my perspective anyway, is the Christian way. And I mean that we always do it from love and respect and care and concern. That's where we come from. We are kind if we are nothing else. What I don't ever want to hear, and once in a while I hear it, is somebody came into my office and they were rude and mean and abusive. And generally speaking, that person, if I can find out who they are, is going to get a personal call from me. And I'm just going to want to say, hey, you know, if you can be nice and kind and polite, then you're with us. If not, well, we're going to have to ask you to find something else to be engaged in. So go out there, thank your representatives and your senators for serving, for being willing to be here in Frankfurt, and thank you guys, and God bless you for coming out on a cold, blustery day to hear me speak and to be here with us in the legislature. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.